Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Life Self Mastery, and today I'm excited to have Paul Shapiro, who's an American writer who authored the book Clean Meat, How Growing Meat Without Animals Revolutionized Dinner and the World. He's also the CEO and co-founder of the Better Meat Company, uh, and, and, and the company which Paul had co- co-founded uh, uses fermentation to turn microbes into, into meat within hours, creating a more sustainable and human method of satisfying a meat tooth than raising and slaughtering animals for food. Uh, Beatman has raised funding from high-quality investors like Green like Capital and Green Circles. Food Tech Venture. Welcome to the show, Paul. Rohit, so nice to meet you. Thanks so much. Great to be chatting with you. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, Paul, uh, uh, you, you have a very interesting journey. You've, you've written a book uh, about uh, about clean meat and you're running a company. What got you excited about uh, about the world of startups and what, what you started uh, in, in the journey of creating this company called The, meat, the Better Meat? Well, my life has really been animated, Rohit, by this view that the earth is not getting any bigger. Humanity's footprint on the planet is getting a lot bigger, but the planet itself isn't getting any bigger. And one of the principal ways that we leave that footprint is through our food print, principally in the amount of meat that we eat. And so it just is no longer any secret that it takes a lot of land, a lot of water, a lot of greenhouse gas emissions and more to raise and slaughter billions of animals for food compared to eating plants. It's also extremely inhumane to the animals. It's bad for public health. There's a whole variety of reasons why this system of raising and slaughtering billions of animals is pretty suboptimal. The problem is that meat demand continues to increase, not decrease. So meat consumption on a per person basis is increasing, not just in the US where I live, but it's increasing in India, in China, in Brazil, all the places it's gonna matter the most in the future, meat demand is increasing and population is increasing. So when you include the fact that per person meat demand is going up and just the number of persons is going up, you recognize like we are not going to be able to farm the moon. We're not going to be able to farm Mars. We have one celestial body to farm and we're going to destroy it if we want to continue increasing and increasing the number of animals who we raise and slaughter for food. And so I would love it if people were happy just to eat plant-based, like to eat rice and beans or to eat dal with rice or to eat lentil soup or hummus. I love those foods. That's really how I eat, to be honest with you. But most people want to eat meat. Um, you know, similarly, I would love it if people wanted to walk and drive more, excuse me, to walk and bike more, but most people want to drive. So we need to find a way to essentially create cars that don't rely on fossil fuels. Well, similarly, we need to find a way to satiate humanity's meat tooth that doesn't involve raising and slaughtering animals. And so that's why I wrote this book, Queen Meat, How Growing Meat Without Animals Will Revolutionize Dinner in the World, really to chronicle the entrepreneurs, the investors, and the scientists who are all racing to bring to the world the first slaughter-free meat. Uh, After I was done writing in the book, though, and doing a book tour, I had the choice that I could continue writing about the people who I thought were going to solve this problem, or I could just continue to, um, you know, think about it, or I could just become one of the people myself 
And so I decided to do the latter and started the Better Meco four years ago and have been growing it ever since. And what we're trying to do, as you pointed out, is find ways to economically and sustainably reproduce the meat experience for humanity with a much smaller footprint on the planet. Interesting. And uh, and you know how how did you go about meeting your co-founders uh, for for Better Meat? Well, did you know them for quite a long time, or you know how did the journey happen? Uh, you know, interestingly enough, um, I when I was on my book tour for Clean Meat, uh, there was a podcast host who's a food scientist. His name is Adam Yi. And Adam had a, at that time, a, pod, a podcast for the food industry. It's called My Food Job Rocks. And he interviewed me for that podcast for the book. And afterwards, I was talking with him and I, I said to him, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about starting this company and uh, I, I'm really looking for a food scientist who uh, uh, could be like in from the ground level. And do you know anybody like who's one of your listeners or maybe somebody in your orbit? Because he's a very well-known guy in the food science world uh, who you think might be interested in this. And uh, he essentially nominated himself and we started talking more and more. And one thing led to another. Uh, and so we decided we we're going to start this venture. And um, a friend of mine had introduced me to uh, another person whose name is Joanna Bromley, and she was, or she still is, a graduate of Harvard Business School and um, really had more of an economic and business-oriented mind than, frankly, uh, I do. And so the three of us started uh, talking, and one thing led to another, and uh, we started the Better Meco. And so it's been a wild journey since then. And... You know, there's a, a saying uh, that Ben Horowitz or Andreessen Horowitz says that, you know, when you start your own company, you will sleep like a baby because you're going to wake up every two hours and cry. Uh, and, you know, sometimes that's how it feels. But other times it feels absolutely wonderful. Um, there's highs and lows all the time. And um, it's been uh, an unforgettable experience that I just am very honored to be on this journey. And I hope to be doing it for decades more. Super interesting. Uh, great to know that you know you got your co-founder uh, from from a podcast. Uh, that's super interesting to know. Uh, I you know I, I was watching this uh, this documentary called Eating Your Our Weight Extension, and I as an Indian assumed that you know since we don't eat meat, uh, I think you know eating chicken is not a problem. But I realized that you know so much of uh, what has been wasted even on chicken. So so do you think uh, you know fish uh, or other uh, other animal protein? Can be a uh, and supplement or replacement for uh, for meat, or do you think it's we should more focus more on plant based food? No, I think we should focus going animal free. So there's a lot of reasons for this. So first and foremost, um, if you look at just the impact on the animals themselves, uh, you know it, it's a pretty horrible thing what we do to chickens, what we do even to fish, um, but also it's just not sustainable. I mean, you mentioned chicken, you know, just to take one chicken from shell to shelf, you need over a thousand gallons of water, a thousand gallons of water. I mean, imagine, you know, walking into the supermarket and you're going to buy a chicken, uh, a whole chicken, and you have to take a one gallon plastic jug of water, unscrew it, flip it upside down and pour it out on the floor and then do that a thousand more times. 
you know, that's what it would take. Um, and, you know, we are depleting the oceans of fish by our ravenous consumption of these animals as well. And we need to find alternatives, both for chicken, for fish, for turkey, for pork, for cattle, like there, for all the major categories of meat that humanity consumes today, we are in great need of economic alternatives to them. There are already alternatives to them, but right now, most of the alternative meat is sold at a higher price point than conventional meat. And it's not a higher price point like 20%, it's usually like 200% or maybe even more. And so because of that, it's just hard to compete. But once those prices can come down enough, or maybe meat prices will go up enough, we'll see. I, I do think that there will be a shift in the same way that after solar started outcompeting fossil fuels on price, so a lot of people started switching to solar. Well, I think the same thing is going to happen with alternative meat too. Interesting. And uh, Paul, uh, you know, a lot of lot of health interests talked about that human beings needed protein and they had uh, such a scarcity of food that they would hunt for meat and eat plants of food in between. Uh, so what is the truth? Do human beings really need a lot of meat uh, and animal protein, uh, like a lot of, lot of gym instructors and a lot of health enthusiasts say that? Or, or do you think it's, uh, it, it's not true at all? Uh, well, it's certainly true that we need protein, but you can get protein from the plant kingdom too. In fact, many of the world's best athletes are vegetarian. So if you look at uh, people like, um, <clears throat> excuse me, Martina Navratilova, who is one of the best tennis players of all time, or uh, Venus and Serena Williams, who have uh, you know two of the best tennis players of our era. These are people who are uh, really into plant-based eating. Even going back when I was a kid, I used to worship Carl Lewis, who at that time was the number one Olympian in the world. And uh, he was a, a U.S. track and field star. And, you know, Carl Lewis said that his best Olympic years were the years after he became vegan. Uh, so, and the list goes on and on of wonderful athletes, uh, star athletes who eat a plant-based diet. So it's pretty clear, we do need protein, but we don't have to get it from animals. And we can get it from plants, we can get it from fungi, we can get it through a variety of ways. And so we shouldn't limit ourselves uh, to the protein that comes from the animal kingdom when there's such a diverse portfolio of proteins out there that we can enjoy, many of which are uh, very light on the planet compared to animal agriculture. Today, I have an interesting stat for you to denote that the founder of Beautiful Lives increased the social media presence by 10x. They managed to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost-effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts. Use lifestylemastery.com slash socialpilot to get a 14-day free trial. Interesting. And, uh, you know, uh, your company has revealed a new product, which is called uh, Reza, which is a plant-based ingredient. Uh, so, you know, what is what is Risa and what is uh, my microprotein all about and how is it built? Um, so glad you asked, Rohit. So, you know, if you think about plant-based meat today, it's typically made from one of three crops. It's either made from wheat, from soy, or from pea, or some combination of those three crops. And what we are doing at the Better Meat Co. is quite different. So rather than using those three crops, we aren't using plants to make our alt meat. We're using fungi, which is an entirely different kingdom. And in the, what we do is essentially take a microscopic fungi, we subject it to a special kind of fermentation, and within hours it transforms into a whole food, complete protein with a naturally textured meat-like 
taste. So when you put it in your mouth and you chew it, it's very meat-like in its texture. But on its own, it has more protein than eggs and it's a complete protein. It has more iron than beef, more potassium than bananas, more fiber than oats, and it's a wonderful product. You can use it to make a fantastic um, chicken breast, a steak, a chicken nugget, a meatball, a sausage, a fish stick, and so on. And so we have built and are operating in Sacramento, California, the largest mycoprotein biomass fermentation facility in North America, where we produce the mycoprotein that we're creating and sell it to big food companies for them to use as ingredients so that they can lower the amount of animal meat that they need in their own product offerings. Got it. And uh, can can anyone brew mycoprotein or you know what is what is the way uh, in which you go about brewing it? Well, there's thousands of fungi out there, just like there's okay. thousands of plants. So if you were to say, hey, can anybody grow soybeans or can anybody grow peas? Yeah, you can. Um, but the way that you do it depend, you know, it, it creates different products in the end and what species you use and the cultivation methods you're using and so on. And so, yeah, anybody can get into the game and start trying to grow. But when you are really getting into it in a serious way, in a competitive nature, you're really trying to figure out how to get it to grow the fastest, how to get it to accumulate the most protein and how to get it to be the cheapest that you can get it. And so that's where we at the Better Miko have really excelled is in stripping costs out of the process, increasing the speed at which it's growing and getting high protein yields as well. Got it. And uh, if, uh... Uh, is the better meat company available to uh, to consumers or uh, uh, do you have a, a B2B approach on that? Yeah, it's entirely B2B, Rohit. So we are kind of like Intel inside. So we sell our ingredient to other companies that power their products. So we're not seeking to create a CPG brand that you're going to go onto the supermarket shelf and see a Better Meat Co. branded product. We are seeking, though, to be the world's largest ingredient supplier to the alt meat industry. So right now, you've got a lot of... Um, and, and frankly, even to the meat industry, excuse me, both to all meat and to meat. And so we are building and designing our future plants, which will have massive capacity to produce enormous quantities of really delicious, succulent, whole food mycoprotein that will satiate your meat tooth, but without the need for animals. Got it. And was there any strategy to go for B2B? Uh, because there, there are a few uh, companies which have gone for B2C models. And uh, you know, what, what, what was your strategy on that? Well, I think a few things. So first and foremost, it's very, what we're doing is like a deep science and it's very difficult to get right. And so then if you're trying to build a brand, a million things can go wrong. So even if you have a great product, even if your science is wonderful, it's really hard to build a brand. Uh, and so most companies uh, that go that route fail. Uh, most startups fail in general, but most companies even that are doing CBG food companies, they're going to fail. They're not going to exist. We are hedging our bet by being a B2B ingredient supplier. We can supply lots of different companies, some of which will fail, some of which will succeed, and then we will increase our chance of succeeding. But even just from a mission-related purpose alone, Rohit, I'd say we don't really want to compete against Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods and other companies in the space because I don't think it does that much for the world. Like if we take away market share from Beyond Meat, it doesn't do much for the world, right? Like it, it might be nice for us personally, but it's not helping the planet or animals. 
which is what the goal of our company is. And so we want to work with the biggest food companies, the big meat producers, and enable them to use fewer animals. That's how we're going to not only have a successful business, but also accomplish the mission of the company. Got it. And, you know, while you're building the company, do you, do you get a, you know, fight back or pushback from meat uh, uh, companies? Because I, I think it's a huge market. And uh, I remember I used to work for a uh, for an accommodation marketplace. I used to get a lot of uh, threatening calls from hotelers because we're trying to disrupt the market. But do you feel the same, uh, especially in, in markets uh, like Japan and Norway, uh, which is really reliant on these markets, uh, on these yeah. on the meat? So we're only selling in the United States right now, but at the same time, um, I do think that there are some meat companies that are, uh, you know, basically have their head in the sand, but I think there's more of them out there who are more forward thinking. And so if you go back to the 1990s and you think about the film wars where you had, you know, Kodak and Canon vying for supremacy to win the film wars, well, they both knew about digital film. But Kodak was concerned that it was going to cannibalize its core business of selling negatives and all the chemicals for the print, for the darkroom and so on for print photography. Canon thought this will cannibalize our core business, but we're still going to pursue it. And we all know what happened. In the end, Kodak declared bankruptcy. And now Canon is one of the largest manufacturers of digital cameras on the planet. So Canon still sells us the same thing, though, a way to capture our memories. It's just in a way more efficient manner today. Um, and so I think that the analogy here holds for the meat industry because there are some meat industry companies that are more like Kodak. That they say, hey, we've been slaughtering animals for thousands of years. We're going to be slaughtering animals for thousands more years. Those are the companies that will become like the Kodak of the future. Whereas the companies that are like the Canon of the future say, hey, listen, we know we've done it this way for a long time, but here's a new way. And it can be done even more efficiently. And we're going to start exploring it. And if it cannibalizes some of our core business, that's what's going to happen. Got it. Interesting. And, uh, uh, you know, do you think the meat consumption is rising? Uh, and where do you think it's rising across uh, maybe in the U.S.? Because since you're focused in the U.S.? Yeah, on average, meat demand is going up, not down. And this generally is associated with increased amounts of wealth. So um, if you think about countries like India and China, where there's an expanding middle class, lots of people are escaping poverty. This is obviously fantastic. We of course yeah. want people to escape poverty. Um, but one of the side effects is that people uh, have a much heavier footprint on the planet. They emit a lot more greenhouse gases. They eat a lot more animals, which takes up a lot more land. And so there is a cost associated with this increase in middle class living throughout the world. And so we want the best of both worlds. We want to make sure that people can get out of poverty without having to destroy the planet in the process. And so that involves not just places like India and China, but even in the U.S., where meat consumption is, is still rising and is extremely high. And so if we can create products that can compete on cost and taste, I think a lot of people would be happy to eat it. So, you know, if you think about it, you walk into a room right now and you flip on a light switch, you know, you don't care. You're not thinking whether it's coming from wind or solar or coal or oil. Like you just want an illuminated room. That's it. Yeah. And the same is so when people eat meat, you know, when most people eat meat. They're not thinking, ah, I'm so glad an animal was slaughtered for this. They don't think about it at all. If they did think about it, they might prefer that an animal not be slaughtered for it. And so I'm quite confident that if we can compete on taste and on price, that animal agriculture will be transformed 
and that we, even in the places where meat demand is rising, they'll be happy to eat meat that doesn't come from animals. Got it. And uh, and you, what, what do you think is the true cost of uh, of this global demand for meat? Do you think uh, you know resources like water will be really depleted by two by you know in a couple of years, or uh, you know when do you think the people will actually go for plant based uh, place? plant-based diet across the world. Yeah, so let's be clear. Raising animals for food is the number one cause of deforestation on the planet. Number one, by far. So if we're serious about not cutting down the rest of our forests, we have to get serious about cutting down on the number of animals we use for food. Raising animals for food is also a top risk for pandemics. So the United Nations put out a report recently called Preventing the Next Pandemic. And in it, they explore what is the most likely reason we are to have another pandemic. And the UN found that the number one cause they think of the next pandemic is increasing demand for animal protein. Number two risk factor is intensification of agriculture, so confining more and more animals in smaller and smaller spaces. And number three on the UN's list of potential pandemic risk is what's called the bushmeat trade, so killing wildlife for meat. So the number one, two, and three reasons the United Nations says that we are likely to have another pandemic all relate to humanity's desire to eat meat. When you consider the fact that animal agriculture is also not just a leading cause of deforestation, pandemic risk, but also of climate change and more, you realize like it is imperative that we move away from this. It is as imperative that we move away from animals as a protein source as it is that we move away from fossil fuels as an energy source. We have to move away from them, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because it's really an obligatory thing to do. Got it. And when it comes to plant-based meat uh, across the world, when, when do you think you know it's going to be a uh, lot more apparent that people are going to start using that that meat. Uh. When it comes down in price, so I think that there's a, a long way to go. I think there's a long way to go, but I'll say this. Right now, plant-based meat is less than 1% of the volume of total meat that's sold on the planet, less than 1%. So how long is it going to take to get to, let's say, 10 or 15%? It's going to take some time, probably about... I don't know, another decade or so before we get to like 10 or 15%. There's various projections that different experts have made, but I hope that that's right, that we can be in a decade's time, maybe 10% or so of the meat that's sold on the planet is coming from plants. That would be great. Um, but it's not enough. It's not enough. We need to go faster than that. And uh, uh, you've, been, you've been growing the company and you raised uh, funding. Uh, how, how do you look at unit economics, especially when it comes to a new product like yours? How do you, uh, uh, how do you determine that the unit economics doesn't, doesn't really inflate, especially in these times of uh, maybe a recession that will be coming across? Yeah. Well, it's tough times uh, for those of us, or well, I was going to say in the food industry, but around the entire world, obviously, there's just, you know, a lot of inflation and a lot of uh, supply chain disruption. Um, but I will say this the price of meat and other animal products is also going up. And so even if our pro even if our costs do go up, they're probably not going to go up as much as the cost of meat because meat has a much greater resource intensity than what we do. And so 
we need to compete on cost. And our goal is always to be cheaper than the type of meat that we are seeking to displace. So if we're trying to displace beef, that's going to be cheaper than beef. We're trying to displace pork, cheaper than pork, and so on. That's the goal. That's where we need to get to. Got it. And um, especially when you when you look into scale the business in, in the last four years, you know, does the decision making really really change over time? And how do you how do you get to decide, you know, which which are the markets that you need to enter? The decision making certainly changes, if for no other reason than that the group of people helping to make the decisions can sometimes change because you bring on new investors or new board of directors members and so on. And so that changes the team. You know, you get a different you know, different voices of the table and that's productive. You know, you don't want to be stagnant and have the same voices all the time, I don't think. Um, but we've made many decisions that have, that we've changed our minds on, um, about the type of product that we wanted to sell, the format of the product that we wanted to sell, the style and the, of the fermenters that we utilize. There's so many different changes that we have made as we've pivoted from one, uh, not really a business model, but on how we achieve the goals that we've set out to make. But our overriding principle, the conviction that we have is that our company exists to help satiate humanity's meat tooth without animals, to reduce humanity's footprint on the planet by cutting down on the number of animals we need to slaughter. We're going to do whatever it takes to accomplish that goal. And that's the, the main organizing principle of the Better Meat Co. Got it. And uh, especially when, when you're scaling a business, you know, uh, how do you ensure that teams be safe to be the most ambitious they can be, especially in a, in a new product category like uh, like uh, better better meat is into, and, and you know how how do you uh, how, how, what steps you take to create you know those environments of safety for them in order to you know uh, really take those risks. Well, we run a completely sterile process. So if there were a contaminant, the entire process would fail. So we wouldn't ever make it onto market. Um, so that's uh, it's it creates even further incentive for us to make sure that the process remains completely sterile. Uh, but we have conducted extensive testing on the product to ensure product safety. And it's something that we take extremely seriously. We are seeking to help make the world a better place, not to sicken people. So our goal is always to not just run a sterile process, but to continually be testing to make sure that what we're putting out into the world is not just delicious and sustainable, but also extremely safe. Mailman is an email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing interruptions, and making your days calmer and more productive. You can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM, uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan, uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. I just wanted to deep dive more into uh, into into uh, how great teams can really help uh, build you know great companies and uh, what are your thoughts on compensation and equity structures so that you can you know supercharge your teams and so that they're always motivated to build you know high quality companies. One of the things that I've learned in the last four years of living in the startup life is that there is oftentimes uh, just not a familiarity among. Uh, team members about the value of things like stock options. And so too often people, they get a salary. So, you know, they get a salary and then they also have a whole range of other benefits, right? You've got medical, dental, vision, and too often stock options are viewed as just like one other perk. They're not yeah. viewed as 
core part of the compensation package. In reality, the stock options are maybe, uh, they could be among the most valuable part of your compensation. It's not just like a side perk that's a nice to have. And so I always think that it's important to remember that there is a balance between cash and equity. And those are the two core parts of an employee's compensation. And so if you go up on one, it's reasonable maybe to go down on the other. And people have different interests. There may be some people who say, hey, I value cash a lot more um, and I need cash for whatever reason in their life, they need the cash more right now. And they may say, okay, I wanna you know, get a, a higher salary, but with fewer stock options. There may be other people who are more comfortable in their life at that moment, or they really believe in the prospect of the company's stock value going way up. And they may think, hey, you know, I'm willing to take a bit of a loss on my salary to get more stock options, because I think in the future, that's gonna benefit me more. Um, but it's just a very different compensation structure from what normal, like large companies offer. You know, most large companies aren't offering any ownership in the company, or if they do, it's a very small amount. Yeah. And so I think for me, like recognizing that there's just a lot of unfamiliarity with the value of stock options um, in the labor pool, in the startup market, I think it's like one of the key things that we always try to make sure people get when we are negotiating compensation packages at the beginning of their employment with us. Interesting. And, uh, you know, you've got high quality investors like uh, Green Lake Capital and Green Services, Food Tech uh, Venture. Um, uh, you know, during this, these, these times of uh, COVID, you know, one of the ways in which investors provide a value uh, and you know how do, how do they do the re- how can you use investors to help you out in the recruitment process our investors have really taken an active role in the company which is particularly helpful for us uh, we need the capital so we welcome that but we actually benefit from many more uh, aspects than just the capital so for example uh, one of our key investors uh, you know, makes regularly makes introductions to us, whether it's for job applicants or potential business partners or even other investors, and they help us with that. Um, they give us ideas if we're negotiating contracts rather than us having to pay our law firm to read the contracts. We have investors who happen to understand contract law, and maybe they can do it for us, and they don't charge us. Uh, so these are all, uh, you know, just a couple examples of things that our investors have been helpful with. But it's really important, in my view, as a startup founder to really employ the investor, not necessarily employ them by paying them a salary, obviously, but it they own part of this company. Let them row the boat forward with everybody else. It's not just your, uh, your employees who are rowing, but the investors can be rowing as well. They've made a big bet on the company, and I want to make sure that we maximize the chance of that bet paying off for them, and that includes putting them in the game and helping them to uh, propel us forward. Got it. And... Uh... Uh, you know, I wanted to understand what was the process of uh, the, uh, writing the book, Clean Meat. How much time did it take for you to to write and get the resources and, and speak to the experts and uh, and publish it? And what was the process of marketing it? It, it was about a year and a half or so, um, not full time, but it was a year and a half uh, from you know from beginning to end of the process. And it was up and down. Um, it was not an easy thing to do. Uh, I didn't really realize how it would go. Um, when the book came out, I was pleasantly surprised by how well it did and, you know, became a Washington Post bestseller. It has now been translated into seven other languages. Like I, I really had no idea how um, how well the book would do. I had never written a book before or never published a book. So I just thought, 
you know, we'll put this out in the world and see. But even to this day, you know, the book came out four years ago. And even to this day, I still hear regularly from people who the book has had a transformative effect on. They've either started their own company, they've joined one of the companies in the alternative protein space, they've invested in companies in the space. Um, it's really, it's really uh, heartwarming for me to hear that and to realize the impact that it's had. You know, I, th I think uh, I'm going to read the book and uh, you know, uh, and give you feedback about about how the book went. Right. Uh, I, uh, Paul, I quickly want to do the top three. What's your favorite business book? Um, Shoe Dog. I, I really loved Shoe Dog, the biography of Phil Knight, um, which is who's the uh, the co-founder of Nike. And I, I really liked it because he's just like totally open about all the failures that they had, all the near deaths that they had. Like, you know, it's not a self-aggrandizing look at, at the, you know, you would think, hey, the guy who founded Nike, you know, obviously, you know, this must be some superhuman. Uh, but I mean, he really is open about all the ways that they nearly failed as a company. And I really uh, was impressed by the story. It was riveting. Yeah, no, I think it's one of my favorite uh, books as well. We put out in the show notes. Uh, and Paul, if you could go back in time when you started uh, Beta Meat, what's the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently? I don't know about the one thing I do, you know, I, there's so many things that I would have done differently. Um, but, you know, there are, I, I just put one thing as an interesting thing. I don't know whether to do this, but people are talking about this these days and I've been listening. So, you know, in the, um, in, in the startup world, it's typical to have a four-year vesting schedule and it's like you have a, a one-year quiff. So you have 25% of your stock options vest at the end of one year uh, or your stock, depending on if you're a founder. So, um, uh, there are some companies like Snapchat and Amazon who they have a four-year vesting schedule, but instead yeah. of having 25% vesting each year, they have it back-weighted. So you get 10% at the end of one year, you get another 20% at the end of the next year, then you get another 30%, then another 40%. So it's still a four-year schedule. You still get 100% at the end of four years, but it's back-weighted to incentivize you to stay longer. And I think that's a fairer way to do it than, uh, than 25, 25, 25, 25. Um, uh, but, you know, I'm not, uh, this isn't like some thorn in my side where I'm thinking, oh, this is like the one thing I would have done differently. I'm just been thinking about it lately. And it might be, it might've been a better structure um, than, uh, than the way that we did it back then. But um, yeah, that, that would be one thing for sure. Yeah, no, I, I think that's an interesting way to keep the talent uh, and incentivize people to to live, to work longer uh, in a high yeah. quality company. Yeah, and frankly, when the four-year vesting schedule was became standardized, the time, the average time to exit was about four years. Now, the average time to exit is like way longer, you know, yeah. closer to like a decade. And it may be that four years is fair for employees, but for uh, founders of a company, I think that you might want to incentivize them to stay longer than four years. And so, you know, uh, I, I give an example of myself. I'm the, you know, the CEO of the Better Mico, and I've already vested my four-year schedule. So, you know, what does that mean? If I can just walk away from the company and take all that, I mean... I actually think it would be disadvantageous for me, but I actually think uh, it would be fairer if it was something maybe like a six or even eight year vesting schedule. That'd be extremely unpopular with founders, obviously, uh, because it's a disadvantage to people like us. Uh, but if I were if I were a venture capitalist, I think that I, I might actually be uh, and now we're backing an early stage like pre-seed company. I think I would probably require a longer vesting schedule for founders, honestly. 
Super interesting. And, and you have a favorite online tool, for example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom. Uh, I, I can't speak highly enough about Calendly. I know that, you know, it's just like, it's an unbelievable, it's so convenient. You know, if you don't use it and you're emailing back and forth saying, hey, what times could you talk? And then you send out, you know, five emails back and forth, you know, trying to manage the time zone differences and so on. Uh, whereas with Calendly, I just send people a link and they can easily, it's way more convenient for them. Uh, and I, I just, it, it really makes my life better. Um, and then also I love using the snooze function in Gmail. So if you want to like snooze something so that it's not in your inbox, it'll come back up at a later time. I'm a very prolific user of that snooze button to bring things back up when I want. So, you know, Rohit, if you email me and you say, Hey, I'd love to reconnect in August about this. Um, you know, let's chat then. I don't have to, you know, put it in my calendar or I don't have to try to remember months later. I just snooze it until August and then it pops back up and I'll email you and I'll say, hey, remember when you said this? Well, let's talk, you know, so that's a big one for me. Super, super interesting. It's something I, I haven't used, but I'm going to use it going oh, forward. Oh, Do yourself a favor. Start snoozing. It's wonderful. <laughs> oh, wonderful. <clears throat> yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, Calendly is another product which I, can, I I use it every day for the podcast. So, so I'm going to put uh, it on, on on the show notes. Um, oh, Paul, you, you, your company is growing. What, what's the best way, uh, you know, people can reach out to you and look at, uh, you know, uh, the hiring options? Uh, what's, what's the best way for them to reach out? Well, thanks for saying that. So yeah, the Better Meet Co. is hiring. We have several job openings, all of which are listed on our website, which is bettermeet.co. Again, that's bettermeet.co. They are not remote positions. They are all based in Sacramento, California, which is a wonderful place to live, very high quality of life. We'd love to have you here. So if you're interested, get in touch. Just check out bettermeet.co and look at our jobs page. Got it. And what's the best way people can reach out uh, and read Clean Meat? Ah, that's very nice of you. Well, you can uh, get clean meat anywhere that books are sold, including Amazon and others. But if you want to go to the book's official website, it's just cleanmeat.com. Again, that's cleanmeat.com. Yeah, no, I love the, love the domain name. I will put that in the show notes. Uh, Paul, thank you so much for taking our time speaking to us. I really enjoyed my conversation with you. Rohit, what a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks so much for all you're doing. And I hope that uh, you continue to have great success. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.